The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gaiad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and joining me for the hour is special guest Peter Bookvar. So, Peter, a lot of people have seen you on doing the media rounds and are familiar with your work, but for those who are not familiar with who you are, just talk about your background, what you've done, how you get involved in markets, what you do now. So, my entree into the markets goes back to 1992 when I started at uh, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jen Rett, a firm that was. Er, Sold to First Boston, then we can credit Swiss, and that was in corporate bond research. So I got my chops really doing research to begin with, but always had a, a passion for, and that was on the credit side, but always had a passion for all markets, including equities, and then uh, shifted from there to a sell side firm for a while. But in, intermittently between that, there I did manage some money, and then I went to a hedge fund, and then went to Worked for Larry Lindsay, who was a Federal Reserve governor in the mid-90s. We had a research firm, which he still runs. And then uh, since 2018, I've been managing money and as a CIO at uh, Bleakley, which is a wealth management firm located in New Jersey, but have offices in different cities in the country. So my daily focus is investing into portfolio strategies, and uh, it allows me to follow pretty much all markets because I have a sort of a go-anywhere type approach. All right, let's talk about the credit research side for a moment that you did. So in my opinion, the two biggest drivers of yield are ultimately inflation and default risk, right? When it comes to anything with credit risk. And traditional finance will argue that the more debt you have that a company takes on, and if you have that across the entire economy, that ends up being inflationary. But there's some point where the amount of debt that's added actually increases default risk. I want you to talk about the way you're viewing the bond market, the corporate credit side now, if you think that Maybe there's an underestimation of default risk premiums increasing as we might be entering some kind of recession here. Well, if we look at the behavior in corporate credit over the past, call it six months, most of the rise in yields have been just in response to the rise in treasury yields. There hasn't been that much. Now, there has been some some spread widening for sure, but not as much as one would think or fear. It has accelerated somewhat over the past couple of weeks. The the if you look at I like to look at the triple C category just because obviously it's junk and it's the junkiest as as a good measure of of what the market thinks of of corporate credit and a looming default cycle. But you know, interestingly, pre COVID or or going into twenty twenty, 
So this is obviously a, a few months before the world shut down. The triple C spread to treasuries was about 880-ish basis points. Well, yesterday's close, we were at 900. So back in December 2019, we had an unemployment rate of 3.5%, which is pretty much where we are now. Obviously, we, we all, I think we can agree that the the, the macro risks are, are tremendously greater today, but its spread to treasuries is not much different than it was pre-COVID, which tells me that there's a lot more pain to be had in the corporate uh, credit side, particularly the junkiest kind. Not only did a lot of these companies get the benefits of free money, which they no longer have, but now they have the possibility and likelihood of shrinking cash flows over the next couple of years. Now, on a yield basis, the yields jumped more so than the credit spread has jumped. And again, that's because of, of what we've seen in, in corporate in, in, in US treasuries where you know the U the, the 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 yield, just in the absolute yield, not spread the yield on the AAA category is now above twelve percent, where going into COVID or going into twenty twenty, I should say, we were about ten and a half percent. And actually if you a month in November of twenty nineteen, we were about twelve. So actually just back to where we were in November twenty nineteen in terms of yield. Uh, and that yield at the depths of the shutdown got as high as 20%. So there's certainly plenty of of risk in corporate credit. But again, just to bottom line this, to differentiate, most of the, the pain we've seen so far in corporate credit has been on the yield side and less so on the spread side. But the spread side pain, I think, is is to come. Okay, so a few few points on that. First of all, I think that's a very underappreciated aspect of the way the year has played out. So if you look, for example, at the AGG aggregate bond uh, ETF AAA quality that's on a ex dividend basis below the COVID crash levels, right? While HYG, the junk debt ETF, again ex dividend, is still way above the COVID crash levels. So it shows you how bizarre the environment has been. A lot of that, to your point, is largely because of Treasuries. Now, when when you look at the kind of junkier part of the credit market, are there certain industries which tend to have more junk? debt issuances than others to, to help maybe the audience determine where risk might be highest if spreads blow out? Well, every cycle that sort of changes. It, it depends on, on you know, what, what's, what's hot and, and, and sexy, you know, in terms of, of, of sector that people want to invest in. Now, the one, the one caveat to the stats I give you, interestingly enough, is that, and it's not necessarily in triple C, it's more of the broader high yield, is that there are a bunch of energy companies you know, the, like the, 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 the middle tier players, the smaller tier energy players that are actually having a good time right now, that maybe is one of the reasons why those spreads haven't blown out as much as we would think. Putting the energy sector aside, that obviously is a, a huge beneficiary of, of higher energy prices, you know, anything tech related has been an invest, a beneficiary of all types of investments, whether it's VC or private equity or in credit. You know, anything that has a TAM, a, w- a big TAM, every, you know, we use that word. So any, any of the buzzwords have been beneficiaries of, of, of that kind of, of any kind of lending or investments from investors over the past, you know, five to 10 years. Yeah. And I've seen some research that, that shows that, you know, generally energy, because they're highly levered, the drillers in particular tend to be the biggest weightings. Now, I, I want to relate that a little bit to the Fed in the sense that, We've been told this narrative that the Fed cares about the stock market going down. I've always pushed back on that under the idea that the Fed only cares about the stock market going down to the extent that it affects credit spreads, right? Because 
that's really at the end of the day what they have to be most mindful of, I think, in terms of uh, liquidity. At what point do you think credit spreads would spook the Fed to maybe start to cool some of this volatility? Because equities can keep going down. And to your point, if oil stays elevated, spreads probably stay fairly muted. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Well, on, on, the, on the equity side, the, the reason why it is a focus is, you know, the, the the construct that Alan Greenspan created with the with the wealth effect, or or the belief that there was one, and I think that that is is why it's still a focus. Now, your point is 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 very important that it's really the corporate credit market that potentially could have more of a direct impact on economic activity. You know, if a stock goes from thirty times sales to ten times sales. You know, the, the Fed's not really going to care. But if credit spreads blow out from 300 basis points to 500 basis points, they'll very much care because they know that that will affect the, you know, the broader capital markets. But also, we have to also separate the two out in terms of its impact on the economy. A sharp drop in, in, in stock prices, yeah, it'll freeze up the IPO market. It'll, it'll make, obviously, difficult for companies that need to raise equity because they can't sell any more debt. Because keep in mind, you don't just raise money on the, on the debt side. A lot of companies, when that market shuts, they, they turn to the equity side because in order to repair a balance sheet. But there is, there is going to be an impact, I believe, on higher-end consumer spending when stocks fall. I mean, we, we have a very ancestral relationship between economic activity and asset prices. And it's not and so where where the Fed may focus again on the transmission mechanism of policy in terms of the the financing of of corporate America on the debt side, where equity prices go matter a lot too. I mean, a lot of these CEOs have stock options. You can be sure that you know as part of a broader economic analysis that CEOs when they see their stock price go down a lot, they probably get nervous and they probably think, okay, the market's telling me something, and I need to. To, to rein in capital investment. I mean, today the, the Philly Fed survey came out and the the capital investment outlook for the next six months fell below where it was in March 2020. Now that's that's what happened. That is that is that is behavior of, of an executive that if cash flows are going to get crimped, we're going to spend less. If the stock market's going to run into 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 trouble, let me back up and and start taking stock of this and, and maybe be a little more conservative with our investing plans. So I don't want to, you know, discount or, or overweight credit, which is hugely important in terms of what it can mean for when the Fed stops or Fed policy. But you know, where stock prices go also does have a big impact because when you look at that that chart of net worth to disposable income, a big chunk of that net worth is is equity. Well, it, it won't be enough, and I, I think it, it, it it's. The impact is 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 double barreled because they go through different sort of transmission lines. You know, corporate credit has its own sort of lane that it, that it runs down, 
And yeah, there, there's definitely some overlap between the two. But the equity side, I mean, when you look at the consumer, and we're obviously a consumer-driven economy, the lower-end consumer is getting just hammered right now with falling real wages and this inflationary environment we're in. You can be sure if the S&P 500 is 3,000, there are going to be less people buying boats and higher-end cars and and so on. But it, not just that. It, it, it could be the difference between going out for dinner four nights a week or going out for dinner instead of two nights a week. And that 40% of, of retail sales, of, of consumer spending, is done by the top 20%. And while everyone talks about, well, the consumer's got this great balance sheet. Well, if, if someone's wealthy, but they feel less wealthy, even though they have a great balance sheet, they may spend less. And if they spend less on things, that has an immediate impact on economic activity. At the same time, corporate credit spreads blow out. Well, then that's going to obviously lead to uh, higher default rates, more bankruptcies, and the economic impact of that, job cuts, job losses, and so on and so forth. So I just think that they're both negative. And yeah, we can wait one more than the other, but it, it's... Now, to, to, to the question of what the Fed's going to respond to, the, the Fed is, 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 is very much winging it. They wing it when they ease and they wing it when they hike because there's this institutional mentality of we need to do something. And when inflation's low, well, doing something, they can do anything because they can get away with it. But now in the inflationary environment we're in, that, that they've, been, they've been sort of mugged. In, in, in terms of their, their, their policy. They, they're the entity that ran around and, and did whatever they want, and now they finally got pulled over. And now they have to go to jail and figure out their way how to get out of jail by lowering inflation rate without tanking the economy and the markets. And they'll, they'll almost know it when they see it, but they don't know when they see it. I mean, you look at the last Powell, and I'm sort of maybe getting off on a tangent here, the, the, the last press conference, Powell was asked two important questions, and he gave two BS I have no idea answers. The first one was, Jay, why are you waiting till June 1st to start shrinking your balance sheet? Well, well, we just decided to pick that day. There was no, there was no reason more than, hey, let's just pick that day. It's, a, it's, it's the beginning of a month and it just sounds convenient. And the second question is, Jay, you're starting this quantitative tightening process. What do you think it's going to mean for the economy and markets? Well, you know what? We really don't know. Well, if you have no idea what QT means for the economy and the markets, then why were you doing QE at $120 billion a month for multiple years? So th- this, is, this is a Fed that has a lot of PhDs, but you know, they throw stuff against the wall, they, 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 they respond to their econometric models, and then they, they see what happens with their fingers crossed. Real, real quick, I just shared in my space, to your point, Peter, I put out that uh, Twitter poll a couple of days ago, are higher food prices making you rethink going to the movies? And some people weren't clear on what the connection was, but it's really about where do you spend your discretionary money, or if you have it to begin with, and 49% said yes, right? So to your point on exactly sort of this this dilemma that we're in, that consumer spending is about to drop because of choices now being ha- having to be made, I think people are really underestimating how much behavior might alter here. It's going to alter because now some people that live paycheck to paycheck that are having a difficult time, you know, they physically have limits to what they can spend. I mean, their paycheck is is spoken for between necessities and, and wants. And there's no other way around that. Whereas people that have discretionary income, you know, they have choices. They can decide whether to spend that incremental dollar on something that they don't need, that they want. It's the wants that people can always defer. 
someone can always just say, hey, you know what? My, my stock portfolio is down 30%. You know, maybe I'll just I'll hold off on, on getting that second house or I'll hold off on redoing the kitchen. Let me just wait to see how things play out. And their balance sheet's fine and they can afford it, but just psychologically they decide to defer because that's a deferment of a spending decision kicks that economic activity into the future from today. Whereas when you take on a lot of debt, you're pulling forward economic activity to today from the future. So, but those shifts in psychology have an, a direct economic impact. Well, let, let's talk about the job market. So the job opening number is, when it's released, it is somewhat dated, but you're right, it's, it's, it's well above the number of people looking for jobs. But you know, we all know the economy works in, in, in every day there's, there's a process in terms of the direction it goes in. And it doesn't just get from here or there in a day. And if you look at jobs claims today, that the four-week average rose to the highest level since mid-February. You're hearing selective stories about companies, and I, I listen to a ton of quarterly conference calls of stocks we own, but also just to hear what they have to say about what's going on out there. And some companies are, are beginning to, to moderate hiring. They're, they're trimming he, here and there. We've, we've had some of the big tech companies and Twitter and Meta and Uber saying that they're going to be much more selective in adding new jobs. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to start. We've seen the the top in those job opening numbers. We've seen the bottom in jobless claims. Now it's all it's not going to all crack in a, in in a day or a week or a quarter. It's a process. But I think we've seen peak labor market. And but that's natural. You know, companies when they see a sharp rise in their in their costs or worries about moderation in their top line, you know, they take action and they they first try to cut non labor costs because that's easy. Then they start to limit hiring because they don't want to fire anybody because that's not good for them. But if that's not enough, well, then they start to trim here and there. And I think we're 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 at the point where we're slowing down the pace of hiring. So we'll start to see a, a reduction in those job openings. And then that will transition if this economic environment worsens to a pickup in the pace of firings that will be shown in jobless claims. On an absolute level, today's jobless claim number, historically very low. But there's a rate of change that's happening that we just have to keep our eye on here. None of this will work smoothly, and I think the odds of a soft landing are near zero. That's a definitive <laughs> as it gets. And, and I agree with that because I think the you can argue that soft landing probabilities are higher if you're in a, a, a less of a leveraged state. Right? It's hard to have a, a soft landing when there's so much debt in the system, which any amount of volatility can can result in sort of a butterfly effect that results in margin calls and then larger declines, right? And now that kind of goes into a little bit of the most recent behavior in markets. I've noted that last week seems to be the start of some degree of normalization in terms of the behavior of treasuries in particular as a risk-off asset when stocks are volatile, right? And yesterday, you know, the S&P was down 4%. Long-duration treasuries were up like something like 2 and you usually see that kind of spread when you're in a real risk-off period, but also when you're in that kind of risk-off period, that would suggest that there's some kind of disinflation pulse beating uh, beneath the surface. Unlike, to your point, yields rising because of inflation, now there's maybe a different kind of behavior reasserting itself. How do you think about diversification in this kind of environment? Because unless you've had commodities, and the reality is most people are not heavily weighted on commodities, nothing has worked in terms of spreading out your risk until maybe recently. But, but I want you to talk through that because if that's a free lunch, it certainly has been expensive. 
Well, I, before I get to the diversification part, because I, I, being in a wealth management firm, you know, it's, it's obviously part of our job for clients, but I just want to just quickly touch on, you know, the soft landing question. I mean, when you look at the last time it happened was 1994 and we were, coming out of a recession in 91. So really only three years into that expansion. And based on the average lengths of economic expansions, you could have considered that sort of early on. Now, this time around, you can argue, well, you know, the recession started with COVID and we're only a couple of years out of that expansion too. But, you know, this was somewhat unusual. I mean, a three and a half percent unemployment rate usually is late stage of an economic cycle. We have a lot of late stage characteristics, inflation, supply pressures, that's all late stage characteristics. So the Fed, the Fed is essentially tightening in the eighth or ninth inning of an economic expansion, where in 94, the last time we had that self-landing, they were sort of tightening in maybe the fourth inning. So there was more hope to absorbing that rise in interest rates compared to, compared to now. And we know since 94, the economy has only become more addicted to easy money and a low cost of capital. And that has resulted in tremendously tight credit spreads and very elevated multiples. I mean, you know, we all debate what should be, you know, because in terms of the stock market, getting the stock market right, a lot of it is what's the right PE multiple. And none of us really know what the right PE multiple is until after the market sets it. But we know it should be, you know, it's usually higher when, when, rates are low and it's usually lower and when rates are higher and obviously inflation flows through that. And here we are at 17 times earnings or 16 and a half maybe after yesterday. And that's still above average. Now getting to the point about diversification. So I was on TV yesterday and Tyler Matheson asked, what sort of similarities are you seeing now compared to what you saw in 2000 to 2002? And for those of us that live that market, you know, there were very similar characteristics. And I'm going to tie this into the diversification question. So if you remember in 2000, tech topped in March 2020. Uh, a lot of the value stocks that were left for dead actually bottomed at the end of 99, early 2020. But the S&P 500 didn't top out until September of 2020. It, it kept on going as people transitioned out of the, the frothy parts of tech and 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 still piled into the Cisco's and Intel's and Sun Micro's thinking that they were somewhat immune. But then everything obviously gave it up, gave it up. But during that time frame, value dramatically outperformed growth. And considering how growth has outperformed value over the past 10 years to an even greater extent, their value is going to outperform growth. And it's just going to be... Now, that, that doesn't mean that you're not going to lose money in value. We're talking relatively speaking. But you know the the, the concept, the, the whole thing about a value stock is that it already has low expectations embedded in them. That's what makes it value. So you can be in value traps that also don't work out. But I think value is going to well outperform growth. And whether that's value in the U.S. or it's value in international markets, that I still think that people should be exposed to. I mean, when you look at global GDP, the U.S. is only a quarter of it, and seventy five percent of GDP happens outside the U.S. and there are 8 billion people, more than half live in Asia. So to not have exposure to Asian markets oh, for the next 5, 10, 20 years, I think is a mistake. In terms of having fixed income, you know, for years, and, and I'm going to talk from the, from the lens of, of dealing with a lot of people, retirees and, and, and high net worth individuals and just average people that don't 
get any income in their bank accounts and they crave interest rates. Well, the market has now given us interest rates with a plus sign in front of it. That is something. It's not, it's not much. By the way, real quick, not to interrupt you on that, but it's, it's interesting. Right? I keep making this point. They, they wanted yield when there was none. And then they don't want yield when there is some. Right. Well, I, we, we, just, we had an investment committee meeting this morning, and I was saying that you know, there's no free lunch going from zero rates to some rates. But we've all been yearning for some rates, but there's a transition period that's going to cost you some money. Now, the, the shorter duration bonds you have, you can, you can more quickly recover from that transition as opposed to owning bonds with 7, 10, 20, 30-year maturities. That'll take you longer to take advantage of this jump in rates. But the market's given us rates, and we've been craving for rates. But it's not a costless transition to getting rates. So having diversification is very important in creating shock absorbers in one's portfolio. One's portfolio is not supposed to all go up on the same day or all go down the same day. That's not diversification. You need things, some things that zag, when other things that zig, and zig and, and, and vice versa. And that's what diversification, however cliche that word is. Now, it's not easy now because bonds and stocks are going down, but it's, it's how you sort of divvy up those, those allocations to try to reduce that, having more value than growth, having shorter duration versus long duration, having some other buffers like precious metals or whatever. Diversification is, is important. I always say that you know, unless, you're not diversified unless you have a portion of, of your portfolio that you hate, right? Because to your point, you know, what are you going to hate? The thing that's zagging when everything's zigging and making money. I think that's an underappreciated aspect of, of portfolio management. Well, what did Ben Bernanke tell us when he wrote an editorial in the Washington Post in November 2010, right when he was about to embark on QE2? He said that QE is meant to ease financial conditions, raise stock prices, which will raise people's wealth, lead to higher spending, and so on and so on. So QE, and I know this from talking to ex-Fed Reserve members, was meant to lift asset prices. That was the main goal. Now, they may say in their models, yeah, we did it to lower long-term interest rates. Well, trying to, you know, QE1 and QE2 was $600 billion each. You're not really going to move long-term interest rates in a multi-trillion dollar market when you're spacing that out over a period of time. And, and they didn't. That Rates went up because people thought what they were doing was going to be reflationary. So, well, if QE was meant to lift stock prices and narrow credit spreads, well, QT is going to do the exact opposite. And this round of QT, compared to the previous one of QT that started in October 2017, is much more aggressive. The one previous started at $10 billion a month in October 2017. It was $6 billion of treasuries, $4 billion of MBS, and it took them 12 months to get to $50 billion. This time around, it's going to take them three months to get to $95 billion. And I don't see how that is not going to have uh, a very depressing impact on markets. Now, you can say, well, we've priced it in. You know, we all know this is coming. We priced it in. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm very confident we've priced in all the rate hikes in terms of the Fed funds rate. I, I think, I think we, we've priced in more than enough than the Fed will do. I mean, the Fed, fund, the, the Fed funds futures in middle of next year is you know, north of 3%. We priced in a lot. But how to figure out what we've priced in with respect to QT, I think is difficult. You know, QE1 
the Fed told us exactly how much they were buying and the, the exact date that they were stopping. And what did the markets do? Well, we, we rallied right into it. We rallied for another three weeks, and then we sold off almost 20%, even though we knew it was coming. QE2, same thing. We knew what was coming, and we knew how much they were buying. We knew it was ending. We rallied right into it, rallied for another three weeks, and then sold off. So I don't know how the market's going to respond or how much has been priced in to this point. But I, I can't imagine that it's really priced in because we've only experienced it once before. So there's not like there's a lot of experience. And how do you price in the Fed stopping purchasing 95, uh, 120 billion a month? Not only in, in terms of expanding, but then rolling that down by 95 billion a month. We just don't have enough experience in pricing. But I know it's it's going to be a headwind. But trying to define it is is tough. I, I think 100 percent it outperforms. You know, pe- people think that passive investing is sort of this new trend, but those of us that lived through the late 90s. Passive investing was the thing. Just buy the S&P 500 in 95 and 96 and 97, 98, 99. Just buy the S&P 500. And it was the same thing. And now, of course, we have the advent of ETFs. But you know, passive investing is not a new thing that had its run and now will revert to the mean. The pendulum will swing in the other direction. And active management, I think, will have uh, a great time relative to passive You know, looking out over 10 years. Well, that, that's a good point. I'll add to that. People have been, people always have the tendency of investing in what has worked. And we know tech worked year after year after year. So all the money over the last five plus years have piled into tech. So passive investment has a high component of tech. And the S&P 500 is what, 33, 35% tech with the top five, six, seven names being, you know, a quarter of the S&P. And you have all these ETFs that have tech. I mean, I, I laugh. There's a an ESG ETF from iShares, and if you if you look at the holding, it's called the iShares ESG Aware Fund. Okay, well, all it is is a closet index fund because you know what the top holdings are: Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Tesla, Nvidia, and there's JP Morgan, but then there's Meta. Okay, so it's basically a tech fund. So that's where all the passive money has piled into, and that's where all the underperformance will take place in. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, and by the way, I will say that that's a good example of of good marketing, right? Because you just go with what works, and then you slap on a label to try to get some marginal new buyers based on whatever narrative you're trying to sell, and that's just the way Wall Street always works. Well, keep in mind the Fed's Fed policy only can influence the demand side. Now, it indirectly affects the supply side for sure, but it directly affects the demand side. I mean, when you are cutting or raising interest rates. You're obviously going to have a direct impact on interest rate sensitive things, which is predominantly housing and autos. You know, they will directly influence your spending decision based on where they place interest rates. 
whereas the supply side uh, obviously is sort of goes its own way. Now, they're definitely intertwined. I mean, easy money financed the shale industry. Easy money financed the fiber optic industry in the late 90s. And so that indirectly led to oversupply. And obviously, then you have years of underinvestment, and then you have uh, undersupply and you have higher prices. But you know, the, the Fed has can directly impact, again, the demand side and try to reduce the rate of inflation by at least one side of the supply and demand curve and just hope and pray that the supply side will will sort of fall into line. But you know, when you when you when you look back a couple of years, you, you didn't need to have taken economics in college to understand that if the federal government is going to spend five trillion dollars over a two year period and the Fed is going to finance most of that and have rates at zero, that inflation was probably going to be a likely outcome. You didn't have to be Larry Summers to make that call. It was it was plenty obvious. And all the signs and all the reactions were there. Now, of course, you throw in COVID and you throw in all the disruptions, but that just exaggerates the inflation trend we were going to have anyway. Just as the 1970s, the oil embargo just exaggerated what was going to be an inflationary trend anyway, where we had too easy money, too much money supply out there, you know, too much money printing and, and, and so on and so on. We were going to have it. It just, it's what exaggerates it and sort of what corrects it back. And yeah, inflation will come back down again. It's just a matter of to what level does it settle out at? What are some of the secular versus cyclical trends that will determine where it settles out at? Does it settle out at back to one and a half to two, or does it settle out at three to four? Is globalization or deglobalization, that whole debate, is, is, is that going to have an impact? Is, is no more low-cost labor in China is that going to lead to a sort of a higher bar of inflation prior to what we've seen? These are some of the things that we're going to have to see. Energy, are, are, you know, the chances of going back to $20 in $20 barrel of oil is, is, is pretty slim because of just years of underinvestment that's not reversing at ever. It's not like it's, it's not going to reverse anytime soon. It's not reversing ever. And how soon do we get to more other forms of, of energy? So, so that I think is, is, is the question. The, the fiscal side, we're not spending another $5 trillion. So that now we have a fiscal drag, which will also reduce the demand side. The Fed is obviously going to reduce the demand side. So inflation numbers will fall. But again, it's just a matter of where they settle out at. But if they settle out at three or four, that's certainly better than eight. But where the Fed funds is today and where, where the 10-year yield at 280, it would still be below that three to four. And we would still have difficulty in the global economy with that level of inflation because we've built the global economy on a construct of 1% to 2% inflation and very low interest rates. And a regime of 3 to 4, again, while it's better than it is today, would be still a different regime than we're used to, which means lower P multiples and, and, and more expensive stuff. I'm curious, Peter, why is it you think the Fed didn't really act earlier? I mean, look, I always make this point that you can't really fault the Fed for not predicting the future because nobody really can in terms of the exact moment something happens. But yeah, they've got all this data. They've got PhDs. They must have seen that home prices around where they live were, were skyrocketing. What is it that you think caused the Fed to be delayed? Is it, is it one of those things where it's as simple as they were so scared about Omicron and, and there was a sort of narrative that the media put out there that they themselves started to believe that caused them to 
not look at the hard numbers? Why are we in this spot? I think the Fed got stuck on bringing back all the jobs that were lost in COVID. So they basically became the Ministry of Social Justice. We can't do anything that would hurt the economy until we get those millions of jobs that were lost back. And that sort of, that, that one-way focus blinded them to the inflation pressures that we're building. And importantly, it blinded them to the tightness in the labor market. We went Fed meeting after Fed meeting after Fed meeting, where Jay Powell kept focusing more on why aren't more people hired rather than what was going on in reality of companies saying, there are not enough people for us to employ because all these people are out of the labor force. So they kept, they, they were ignoring the demand side for labor and, and it blinded them to things that were going on around them. And, you know, these, 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 these people, they talk to a lot of business people. They talk to, you know, particularly the regional Fed presidents. They talk to businesses in their districts. So they heard from them, but they were all just very afraid in, to your point, also being in a COVID world, you know, for meeting after meeting in the statement, they said COVID was going to be a main driver of economic activity, and they were just afraid to pull back. Now, what they should have done is there's no, there's no symmetry to their thought process. Because keep in mind, they did all the QE, they cut rates to zero in the, in the heat of things in March, April 2020, because everything shut down. Now, if you think symmetrically from the point of view of, of an economist or central banker, you should, you should have said to yourself, in November 2020, when Pfizer came out and said, well, the efficacy of our COVID vaccine is north than 90%, the Fed should have said, okay, this should have been our first signal that maybe this COVID emergency is over, and that while we'll still have to live with this for the next couple of years, we've reached the bottom in terms of the health aspect. But there was not any of that. It was, the, 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 it was shifting to, okay, we need to bring all these jobs back. Full steam ahead. You're exactly right. The, the, using, using the lever of QE, which we know Bernanke fell in love with, and not only used it three times, but then tried Operation Twist and did everything he could to manipulate the level of interest rates, it has now become a noose around their neck in terms of being flexible and adjusting to the macro environment. Because they know that QE has this direct effect into asset prices, and how do you just shut it off? especially when it got as big as it did. It just became an uncontrollable animal that they just did not know how to tame. And using the lever of the Fed funds rate just allows you to be much more flexible. But, but keep in mind, like the reverse repo facility is because they did too much QE. You know, getting rid of the Volcker rule, which limited banks' ability to make markets in a variety of things, created a lot of the dis dysfunction in March 2020 that then the Fed responds with all this massive QE. So one failed policy then leads to policy that is meant to address the fa previous failed policy that then leads to other problems. And that's what we've seen. There's just this whack-a-mole that the Fed is now dealing with, with this, the size of this balance sheet. And now they're stuck with how do they, how do they, reduce the size of their mortgage-backed security portfolio when 90% of people that have mortgages have them less than at a 5% rate and that you've just dramatically lengthened the, 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 the portion of their MBS duration. Uh, that was not in their thinking when they decided to 
add, you know, to do NBS as part of their QE in March 2020, which, you know, was done out of habit, not out of clear thought. You know, Loretta Mester the other week said, oh, we, we don't want to be in the credit allocation business. Well, you had a massive portfolio of MBS and you were buying corporate bonds. And, and, and now you're saying you don't want to be in the credit allocation business? That, that complexity point is, is phenomenal. Actually, I, I want to think through that more because I think that's a really interesting aspect of where we are in the cycle. You, you make a great point in that those supply side constraints sort of handcuff the Fed's ability to react. And if they did want to cut or ease in some way, those supply side constraints could, could, can make that more difficult. And yeah, that, that's, that's one of the problems. I mean, we're so used to heading into recession and market downturn and the Fed is, is there to, to cut and ease and, and, and we'll get this sort of V bottom. Now, keep in mind, Greenspan was cutting all the way through the tech implosion and it didn't stop the NASDAQ from going down 80%. And Bernanke fought tooth and nail the downturn in the housing market and that, that didn't stop you know, the downturn and didn't stop a 50% decline in the stock market. So the market has a history of falling even with easing. Now on the supply side, it's something that I try to follow as closely as I can. I do think now heading into the Chinese or post-Chinese Lunar New Year, when you got past of this year, you got past the holidays here in December and their holiday, there were some small signs that the supply constraints in terms of transportation were beginning to ease. And then, of course, you go into March and Shanghai starts to shut down and you've thrown some of that progress out the window. But I do think that on the good side, that as the year progresses, we could see some alleviation in some of the pressures. And that is because we had a lot of overordering ahead of Christmas. We, I mean, Walmart and Target talked about it this week, that they have some excess inventory because they just ordered too much because they were afraid they weren't going to get it in time. So now that could this is going to moderate the good sides uh, of inflation in certain things. But I think when you talk about the supply side, there's going to be still secular supply side challenges. I mean, and and I've said this before that, you know, just in time inventory is dead. We're never going back to the just in time that we had previously. There'll be a new form, there'll be more inventory on the shelves. That that's just going to be the, the natural response. Some companies after getting out of the vertical integration business may want to get back into it just to have better controls over their supply chain. You look at that, that the container shipping market, there's been massive consolidation over the past five years that these companies have pricing power for the first time. So there could be a higher level of pricing than we've seen before. You've had a lot of trucking companies go out of business in 2019 in response to the, the China tariffs that then wiped out a bunch more in early 2020, and a lot of them have not come back. And that's why we have capacity constraints in the trucking industry that is beginning to show some signs of, of alleviating. We're seeing spot rates fall, but it may not alleviate to, the, to where we were pre-COVID. So I do think we're going to see some alleviation on the supply side. But getting back to the point I made earlier, what do we eventually fall back to in terms of inflation? What is going to be the natural rate of inflation when looking past the next two years? Is it going to be back to one and a half to two? Where is it going to be three to four for a longer period of time? I mean, keep in mind, look at the 1980s and 90s. We've had this dramatic slowdown in the rate of inflation, but inflation still was about 3%. It wasn't until you got to the 2000s, 2010s that you started to broke that 2% floor on a, you know, a more consistent basis. Well, to your point, I remember back in college in, from 2000 to 2004, that the risk-free rate was considered three percent in any kind of modeling you do on CapM or anything else. So to your point, you know we've kind of been 
in a bit of an anomaly anyway over the last you know two decades or so. Well, the the strong what's interesting with the dollar is that up until a month ago, the dollar was only strong against the euro, the yen, and the pound, pretty much. You know, outside of you know the Turkish lira, for example, the commodity currencies traded great. The real, the South African rand, the Canadian and and, and Aussie dollar. And even some of the 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 commodity dependent other commodity dependent South American countries, where the currency traded very well against the dollar. It's only recently that the dollar has has accelerated pretty much against everything. Now it's very easy to say, oh, stronger dollar is bad for emerging markets and vice versa. But a lot of these emerging markets, since the Asian crisis in the late '90s, have improved their you know so called balance sheet. And that while a lot of companies and some of these countries have a lot of dollar denominated debt, they also have a lot of dollar reserves to mitigate that exposure. So I am less worried this time around of the negative impact of a strong dollar on emerging markets. And looking out, you know, again, longer term, I still think you look at emerging Asian economies, you look at Indonesia, for example, 250 million people, look at India, their long-term growth trajectory is not going to be impacted by the short-term rally in the dollar. Now, with respect to crypto, you know, big picture, I was very sympathetic to the creation of Bitcoin. You know, the Fed essentially spawned Bitcoin. Now, crypto would have probably developed on its own anyway, in terms of, of its own disintermediary type impact and, and, and so on. But actual Bitcoin was spawned by the Fed. It was, okay, the Fed is, money, is printing money like wild, and we need to own a finite asset that's not going to get depreciated. Uh, by this, you know, ad hoc approach of the Fed that they can print things in an infinite fashion, and then obviously Bitcoin has morphed into so much more. But at least right now, in terms of Bitcoin, and then separating from the broader crypto, you know, Bitcoin, and, and I, I was I was berated for 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 the last couple of years. Oh, it's digital gold. It's digital gold. And the only thing that Bitcoin has proven to be has been digital QQQ. That's what it's been, and in a leveraged fashion. Now, granted, you know, Bitcoin's performance has been spectacular over the last 10 years, no doubt about it. I don't take anything away from it, but it only has 13 years of history, and all it's known is QE. All it's known is negative interest rates and zero rates and all this easing. That's the only real thing it's been exposed to. So it hasn't really been now it's really only being tested for the first time. I mean, you compare it to gold, 5,000 years of, of history for gold, gold's been tested a lot. You know, you, you live 5,000 years, you, you go through a lot of ups and downs. And there, there's, a, there's a track record there of, of, of substance. Whereas as crypto is still sort of developing its presence and is only now getting tested. Now, at some point, I hope Bitcoin plays the role that it was eventually created for and that it doesn't trade with the with the triple Qs, and that it is its own asset class. I think we're going to head there. I don't know when. I don't know at what value Bitcoin will be when we get there, but we'll head there. But I think we have to appreciate, you know, this technological revolution that's going on in crypto. And that, I mean, for me, I'm trying to learn as much as I can about it to see where it all goes. But Bitcoin's now replacing gold, and and you know, crypto is still going to have some centralization to it. As much as you want to talk about decentralization, you know, Coinbase is going to register, you know, register with the SEC, <laughs> and and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point a Charles Schwab account that that has SIPC insurance, that Coinbase accounts have the same thing too. So as much as we want to talk about decentralization, there'll still be a centralized aspect to it. I think this is just another iteration of technology, 
in the financial sector that you know, technology has been bringing us since the beginning of time. I will add to that real quick that it's good to distinguish between the technology, the small sample it's been around in, and human behavior. And I'll close off because we do have to wrap up here that I put out this tweet that got a little bit of engagement over the weekend. And I do believe that this I've seen so many people talk about the Luna crash and crypto crash more broadly last week. And people have said, well, it's amazing how uh, resilient Bitcoin has been in broader equity markets. It shows you that it's not a systemic event. And all you have to do is go back to 08. Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy September 15, 2008. The stock market did not crash until a week later. So there are these lags. We don't know if this volatility in some of these cryptocurrency coins and these crashes may ultimately be systemic or not until maybe a week or two later. We may be in that period right now, more of a kind of a thought experiment. But anyway, everybody's here. I apologize, Alpha Watch. You're going to have to wrap up here. Please, again, make sure you follow Peter Bookfar. Uh, phenomenal follow, phenomenal way of framing things. Uh, and Peter, I always appreciate your time. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.